one of the largest deficiencies we see within USDC and USDT is that they sort of externalize all of the risk of the product onto users and then internalize all of the yield to themselves, which we think is a pretty crazy construct as a product, but um, is is pretty like indicative of how strong the, the actual demand for stable coins is, right? Like you're actually telling people, you take all of the risk, we're going to keep all the return, and there's still $130 billion of demand for a product like that. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. This show is made possible thanks to our fantastic sponsor, the Atom Accelerator. If you're a developer looking for the home in the industry, the Atom Economic Zone welcomes you. Today is August 7th, and as always, we have a great interview lined up with Guy and Connor, two members of the Athena team. And Athena is a protocol looking to build a truly decentralized and scalable stablecoin on Ethereum. Um, I did want to take a second to give a little self-shill to our conference we are hosting in Austin, Texas in September. If you use code 0x30, you can get a 30% discount on those tickets. So be sure to do that. Hit us up on Twitter, and then we can go grab a beer down in Austin. It's September 11th through 13th. It's one of the best uh, conferences uh, of the year, so we highly recommend you come. Um, But before we get in the interview, we are joined by Ren and Matt to discuss the latest market happenings. Matt, why don't I hand it over to you to start it off? Today, I'm putting centralized exchanges for trading perpetual futures in the hot seat. This is because of the amount of innovation that's currently happening in the decentralized and on-chain perpetual futures landscape. If we look last week, GMX launched V2 of their product. It looks to address a lot of the problems they had in V1, such as uh, a lack of ability to attract LPs. This is because, A, to be a liquidity provider on GMX, and just for some background, uh, you know, GMX liquidity providers are the, the counterparty for every trade. So anyone can go trade there, and you're trading against these LPs who go and put assets in there. Anyways, if you're being a liquidity provider in V1 of GMX's product, you are taking directional exposure to every asset. So this was things like Bitcoin, ETH, Link, Uniswap, USDC, and um, in a basket, that was a composition that may not have been what everyone really wanted. You know, maybe I don't want the GMX governance token holders telling me uh, what amounts of these assets I have to hold. So in V2, they address this with isolated liquidity pools where you only have to provide liquidity against, you know, whatever asset you want. So I can go and provide liquidity only against, you know, maybe Bitcoin or maybe ETH or whatever I want to hold. So this is one very, very cool factor. And then the second thing that I think is most interesting. Oh, another thing is because of these isolated liquidity pools, eventually we might even see permissionless asset listing. So in V1, there's very few assets listed because you needed this liquidity in order to facilitate trading. In V2, as long as someone's willing to take the other side of the trade and provide liquidity, that asset can probably be listed. So GMX will probably be listing far longer tail assets in the near future um, and maybe even permissionless asset listing. The second one is there was in, in V1, a lot of people said that it was a benefit that the liquidity providers were taking on the risk or whatever you want to call it of trader PL. So if traders were going to lose a lot of money in aggregate, GMX LPs were going to win. If traders won, then they lost. Um, you know, some people reckon this and like, sorry, some people liken this to uh, being the casino with, camp, you know, traders being the, the casino. Although for a while this worked really well because traders were losing a ton of money. Since January 1st of this year, traders have actually just been wrecking GLP providers. So in V2, there's a, a way better function for balancing open interest, meaning for making sure that there's an equal amount long and short so that instead of a risk of, you know, trader PL, more so liquidity providers are just pocketing those fees, um, more like a VIG with a sports book or something like that, which I think is a you know amazing model when compared to the likes of uh, the way V1 worked. Additionally, you know, synthetics is heating up with CCIP launched recently. It's gonna go cross-chain. So soon we'll see synthetics perps V2, not just on optimism, 
this should be a huge benefit given that Quenta and Polynomial, which are the two biggest exchanges for trading synthetics purpose to, are actually ending their incentive programs at the end of this month. So this is like a little bit of low-key alpha, but if you trade on those exchanges for the past few weeks, you've been able to get more money in OP and token rewards than the fees you were paying. Um, so this will end at the end of the month. And you know whether or not any of those users and volume that they've received is sticky or not well, has yet to be seen. But anyway, CCIP should be a huge benefit for them. What's going to happen to this ecosystem of uh, applications that have kind of taken GLP and made it a core piece of their product? Like, I, now there's a couple like yield aggregators that have really like built a product around this, and are they just like shit out of luck at this point? Some of them, yes, and some of them, no. So V2 actually allows an even better mechanism for partnering uh, with you know products that want to build in the GMX ecosystem. But that being said, you know, a lot of the builders who've spent time building these like delta neutral vaults on top of GMX or whatever um, are kind of shit out of luck. So while in the long term, it'll probably benefit people that are looking to build on top of GMX. A lot of the builders who've been there um, recently might might have uh, put some effort into into verticals that aren't going to be too beneficial in the long term. I got another question for you and sorry to put you on the spot, but I guess if let's say someone goes and lists Pepe tomorrow. And that's like an asset that people can trade against. If PNL goes so negative that the protocol is left holding bad debt, um, what happens in that scenario? Yeah, so actually they don't have, like there's no roadmap or tweets or anything that say that they're going to support permissionless asset listing. Rather, like I uh, bothered the team a little bit to get that information that that is something that's planned in the future. So we'll definitely have to see how, you know, first these longer tail assets go. And then I'm sure... uh, I think that really the question there is like how much trust you have in GMX's liquidation mechanism. Um, And the protocol realistically may not be even liable for those debts. So I don't know. I think it has yet to to be seen, I guess. My take here or just initial knee-jerk reaction was that liquidity in DeFi is fairly fragmented already. Like just having the whole GLP like versus all of the other options out there, at least in the current environment, is kind of like a big ass. And nowadays you're increasing the complexity on the user. You know, sure, like the original V1 basket had like Ving, had Uni in it. But now as a user, you start to think, oh, do I want to choose between like BTC trader PNL or like ePNL or like a- any other token? And I think that fragmentation makes it even harder. Um, or even like just looking at it from like a super like simple perspective, right? You look at GLP as a whole, it's a nice number because you say like GLP as a whole has a total like X dollars of liquidity, but now like you silo it to certain markets saying BTC has like 10% of that liquidity, ETH has like 15% of that liquidity. And it just from like a numbers perspective doesn't look as nice. Um, I don't know whether V1 will still be available when V2 goes live, it, it, it if it is, I think it'll be very interesting to see sort of the dynamics between providing liquidity between V1 and V2 and how much really migrates to V2 and whether that's like something people actually want at the end of the day. And going back to your point about Trader PNL, um, it being like wildly positive this year, I think on aggregate, you can expect people to get liquidated, they'll DJ and gamble and lose, but that's on aggregate over a long term. Right. Um, I think the case against GLP has always been what if everyone is long and um, GLP gets, uh, sorry, everyone is long, it's a bull market and GLP gets completely wrecked. 
I think that's definitely true. Like at one point, everyone was like super duper rich in the bull market, but it's basically where the question of whether the GLP holders can last it out long enough to get to the bear market, and then everybody gets liquidated, liquidated, then they'll make bank. Um, but yeah, I just think it's an interesting approach of sort of tackling all of the problems that GLP slash GMX had in B one. Matt, does this change who the fastest horse in the perps race is? You know, between DYDX, GMX, Quenta, you know, Level, Vertex, we're seeing aggregators like Mux come online. Like, who, who's your favorite here? Who's the winner? Yeah, honestly, I don't think this, like, you know, really changes the uh, the the top spot. Rather, it gives GMX a fighting chance again. Um, if you look at, like, volume and fees market share, GMX was, I want to say, like, around 20 or 25%. We could probably pull up a chart. Um, 20 or 25 percent about a year ago you know august september last year and now it's probably down to for volume probably under five percent under ten percent so they've really been getting hammered by some of these newer products a lot of that's airdrop hunting and you know things maybe incentives things that aren't sticky but at the same time they have been getting out innovated by new entrants to the market um anyway so this gives gmx a fighting chance to to return to that like king spot at the end of the day i think if dydx v4 manages to actually succeed have a user experience that really abstracts away you're in the cosmos makes you feel like you're just using an app no matter what wallet you're connecting with no matter what asset you're starting with i think the dydx team is really strong um has proven that in the past and still maintains the the dominant share for both metrics that i just mentioned as well yeah i hate to say it but i do think that gmx's days are limited potentially i know they just reduced fees pretty drastically but i was looking at for every $10,000 of volume traded, how much revenue does DYDX bring in versus GMX? And for GMX, it was like 21 bucks. And for DYDX, it was like two. So I just don't understand how you know volume will actually stay on GMX with fees being so high in comparison to DYDX. So I definitely agree and echo your points there, Matt. Yeah, I guess just to be a contrarian to myself, um, GMX does have an impressive ability to attract these retail users and have them stay there. I'm not sure what it is necessarily, you know, first mover advantage, being on Arbitrum, uh, meme culture, literally could be meme culture, but they have a, they've been very impressive with having users stick and, and enjoy their product, which is something that uh, I don't know if I could say for a single other DeFi application, maybe Uniswap. So impressive. Ren, who you got in the uh, hot seat or cool throne this week? It wouldn't be a week of zero X without us talking about Coinbase in some form or the other. So we have Coinbase in the cool throne this week. Um, last Thursday, after market closed, they announced their earnings. It was pretty pretty positive, all things considered, especially given the market climate of crypto as a whole in Q2. So the revenue came in at $708 million. That's versus analyst estimates of $629 million. So a roughly like 10 plus percent beat. Um, after those results came out, the stock went up 10% post-market, but then retraced that entire move. Um, I think the market was kind of confused about how to value Coinbase or what to think of Coinbase. Um, but yeah, if you consider that the Q2 2022 revenue was 808 million and consider everything that's happened between Q2 2022 and Q2 2023, including Luna, 3AC, FTX, it's, it's pretty impressive that their revenue has basically only decreased 12.5% year on year. Of course, there's other like sort of factors that push back against this increasing revenue. For example, declining interest income given lower USDC market cap, USDC market cap has 
continuously been on the decline versus UCT, which has posted record profit profits. The market cap is still continuing to increase. But I think there's a few points that stand out. The first is that Coinbase has a fairly sticky retail user base. Perhaps it's the only option or only convenient option for a lot of users in a lot of countries or, or within the United States too. And transaction revenue from that front is still fairly strong. Their retail take rate, basically like trading fees, used to be around 1.5 percentage points at the end of 2022. But someone in Coinbase basically went, hey, I think we can charge more. We and so actually the consumer or the retail take rate is 2.2%, which like, I guess to you and me, like just trading on like Perfdex is where you're facing fees of like five bips, 10 bips, 20 bips, 2.2 percentage points is to be quite frank, batshit insane, but there's still a decent amount of retail users that are still paying for that. And of course, talk of the tunnels base that's going to fully launch on August 9th. Um, and L2 was probably the word that I heard the most often in the earnings call. Brian Armstrong just kept on saying L2, 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 Arbitrum, Optimism, Base, Polygon. That was really sort of the narrative for half of the earnings call. And he mentioned that Base will be monetized through sequencer fees and Coinbase can run of these sequencers as others can over time. Um, probably just one more fun thing about the earnings call was that Coinbase had relatively strong subscription services revenue. And one component of that was ETH staking. And basically, Brian said that the outperformance in that was driven by higher MEV boost rewards. And I think most of us just thought that was pretty cool to hear like in the TradFi analyst earnings call. Yeah, that's that's a really great synopsis there. And and on your point about, you know, like I think you said an average uh transaction fee for trades on the platform was two point two percent. Um, that does seem ridiculous, right? But if you think about it, like the on ramp kind of has that privilege. And of course, if you're actually actively trading using just like the Coinbase front end, okay, yeah, that's probably a bit nuts. But if you're converting, you know, dollars from your paycheck into crypto. You kind of don't really have a choice and once you get into the ecosystem right you have better alternatives but where you can execute your swaps but you know for, for dollar to crypto transactions i mean you, you really got one option if you're a us-based resident and that's uh that's really coinbase and i'm doing it too it's like if i'm on or off ramping like i'm going to coinbase of course i'm going to support that company they're fighting the good fight for us like I think they might just kind of realize that they're the best destination for any us-based customer there really is no second best <laughs> Okay, but we're not paying 2.2%, right? Like that's only on the, I, don't, I haven't used Coinbase in a while, but at least back in the day, you know, the way it worked was if you use the coinbase.com front end where you just like easily put a credit card in and buy, you pay the two, 3% fee, whatever actually absurd number it is. But then you go to the the order book exchange and, and your fees go down to like 50 bips or 60 bips, still ridiculously high when compared to most other on and off ramps, but reasonable, at least in my head. Um, so anyways, yeah, if you're a user, don't, don't pay two to 3% when you're using Coinbase, go figure out how to use an order book and save yourself that money. It's not that hard. So that was an interesting point about the L2s though. How I actually am criminally underexposed to L2s. And like, I think that it's clearly a forming narrative. So like, what's the best way to get exposure? If, if you guys have an opinion there. If you want specific exposure to base, there probably isn't a good way to do it. I'm not sure if buying Coinbase stock as exposure to base is the best option you have. 
definitely don't go out and buy that meme token vault. That's not how you get exposure to base as a whole. Uh, I think probably your best bet for getting exposure to base specifically as an L2 would be to buy tokens of projects that are specifically launching on base, but with a strong existing brand outside of base. So the best example of this is probably Velodrome, Optimism's largest decks by a pretty decent margin and make a good amount of fees, but they're launching a, basically a, another version of that on Coinbase called Aerodrome with its own token, right? That's probably the best way to do it, in my opinion. Like, sure, you can buy like existing dApps that exist on other protocols, but like, I'm not going to go buy, for example, Uniswap or some other like big lending borrowing protocol that's going to deploy on base just as my exposure. I think it has to be a token specific for that dApp on base. Yeah, and of course, none of this is financial advice, but it is kind of interesting because you also noted, Ren, that uh, sequencer revenue is like, that's how the, the profit generated by the sequencer is how Coinbase is going to like uh, essentially realize profits from base. And already in the first couple of days since launch, it's generated $1.1 million uh, with, you know, fee, L2 fee revenue less L1 uh, call data costs. So it's already, you know, I think we're like, what, a week and a half into launch and a quick million bucks in Coinbase revenue. So, you know, I, again, not financial advice, but Coinbase itself is going to, you know, accrue a meaningful amount of value from uh, base L2. Yeah, one thing to add on to the Aerodrome comment, Ren, is I guess they're giving 25% of their protocol fee revenue to um, public goods funding. So I'm just kind of wondering if that's going to be like a normal trend. Like are a lot of projects from Optimism going to use the same tech stack, go to base, kind of be like a bit more public goods oriented just because the nature of base? I don't really know, but... I have a trouble time like seeing like, okay, like, do I want to own Aero or do I want to own, you know, Velo? Like, <laughs> I just don't know. It's like if a quarter of all revenue is going to public goods funding, I just don't really know how that shapes out in terms of token performance. But yeah, like Dan said, not financial advice at all. Another interesting uh, cool throw on this week is PayPal, actually. Didn't think we'd see them back in the news, but they've been off and on with crypto for a while. Um, most recently announcing PYUSD, which is an on-platform stablecoin. So it's funny. It's like a couple months ago, we were talking about protocol-specific stablecoins uh, with the launch of like Aves Go and Curve CRV USD. Well, now, now we're getting company-specific company stablecoins with the launch of PayPal's PYUSD. Uh, and so they announced that customers will be able to purchase, send, convert, and fund purchases with this new stablecoin in the coming weeks, uh, which is pretty big news because PayPal itself has about 400 million active users. Uh, and this announcement comes just a few months after PayPal enabled crypto purchases for its Venmo users. Uh, and I think the probably my personal biggest takeaway with this announcement is they are launching this thing on Ethereum. Uh, and so again, like we're seeing this increasing narrative of things that are ha like we used to get, I don't know, felt like in the bull market, you'd get this like crazy big announcement of a, uh, you know, a real company partnering with like some random ass blockchain project that like you knew was a scam if you spent time in this space. And it was like, great, just like another meaningless partnership. But now with the SAP news and now this PayPal integration, you know, this is kind of what you'd imagine adoption actually looks like. And it's all happening on Ethereum. Um, so that's a pretty interesting takeaway for me personally. Uh, now, the stablecoin itself kind of got a lot of heat. It's actually issued by Paxos. So to create the contract, they forked the uh, USDP 
Paxos, one of Paxos stablecoins contract. And they're like randomly catching heat on Twitter because this is like a very old version of Solidity. But again, it's forked from an old stablecoin. So of course that's going to be the case. So that was like this weird thing people were hating on. Um, and then it also got a lot of hate for being like a centralized stablecoin because it has a freeze functionality. That is not surprising at all. If a private company or like a public company uh, is launching a stablecoin, like they are already a centralized company, you're going to have to trust to use this thing. It's like no different than USDC and USDT having a blacklist function. So just don't use the stablecoin if you don't want to hold a, like a centralized form of money. Like it, I, I, I don't know why this was getting so much heat. I thought this was very strange. Like why would Pay, PayPal go launch like this decentralized form of money that you know some of these protocols are trying to make? That's just not going to be the person to do that. That's not going to be the entity that does that. Obviously, that's still like a goal we want to work towards building. But yeah, not sure why we thought PayPal would launch that. Uh, to me, what matters here is the transparency. So like this thing's on chain. Everyone can go look at the contract. Everyone can go see the transactions uh, and kind of know like what's going on in the back end with this PYUSD when you're using it on platform. Now, I imagine that PayPal itself won't like every time a user purchases uh, a you know a good on using PayPal, uh, I, I don't imagine they see that as an Ethereum transaction. I think they're going to do a lot of the bookkeeping in their own internal system uh, and then kind of like true up transactions when need be on chain. Uh, and eventually if the like, users want to offboard PYUSD from the platform to an external wallet, uh, then they'd have the ability to do so. And like that, of course, would be a transaction. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Like I'm excited about the launch and then there's like this whole other wave of things that is going to be really, really interesting to watch happen. Like how do they drive liquidity for this token? Cause that's so imperative to keeping a uh, token pegged. Like, are they going to launch an AMO or a PSM? Like we see with all these on-chain protocols and their stable coins. Like there's a whole world that they'd have to unpack if they really did enable external transfers, which they said they're going to do. So I'm uh, going to watch, it's going to be an exciting one to watch this one unfold. Crypto Twitter really loves to get upset about the stupidest things. Like I totally agree with your take, but it was honestly for me this the smart con the people that were you know shitting on the smart contracts that they were using because they're older. To, yeah, you totally. Every time we launch something new, we should 100% innovate and do something that's not battle tested. That's a terrible take. I think um, you know using battle tested older older smart contracts is actually totally fine for something like this and. And that, you know, pushing for innovation in, in that type of space actually it sometimes isn't even a good idea. But yeah, just crazy to see all the hate. I think one of the main takeaways for me is that this increases or in some sense increases the retention of sort of dollars within crypto. I think like a lot of people would be fine receiving, say, their wage or their pay in crypto and like USDC or UCT, but it's what comes after that that's really a pain in the ass. You know, you have to off ramp it. You can't really pay for anything in crypto today. And there are sort of like interim solutions being built. For example, Gnosis Pay with the card that they've launched in Europe, which I think will be available to American users soon. But this gives you a lot more reason to sort of use stable coins on a day-to-day -day basis, right? For example, with PayPal, they have their PayPal debit card. You can pay your bills, for example, your Spotify, your Netflix, your whatever subscription. They have direct deposits. They have savings where you can deposit your like assets and receive a 4.3% APY. And I don't know how much like this PayPal USD is gonna be integrated with all of these services or products that PayPal has. But if it is integrated, even to like some extent, I do think that's like a pretty big move from PayPal's side, just because it makes 
stable coins have much more value from like an everyday consumer perspective? The first thing I thought about, not going to lie, was I don't know if you guys remember that headline a while back saying like any transfers over $600 will be reported by Venmo to the, or sorry, to um, by PayPal to the IRS. That that kind of just like sits in the back of my head and I'm like wondering, man, I should probably go read those terms of service because to me that feels more like a, a doc scheme than anything else to me, not going to lie, because I don't really know the main use case for PayPal. I get it for cross-border payments and I get it for maybe like switching money around between international accounts for PayPal as a business, but I don't even know if that's legal either using like their stable coin per se. So I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see how this one pans out for sure, but not entirely optimistic. Connect your Ethereum dressing at $5 free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, no, we need the anyways, experiments uh, though. I'm excited for the experiments. Like we need people testing this shit. And like, I, I haven't actually done this and it literally just hit me right now, but I'm fairly certain that SAP's, um, they're like cross-border payments thing was on Sapelia testnet. And I'd love to go find that contract and like mess around and see like how much value has been shoved through that thing. Obviously it's testnet, so it's not real money, but I'm curious if like any clients were like fired up to use this thing or not. So, uh, that's another thing that I need to put on the to-do list. Definitely let us know what you find, but on the, the kind of similar same vein as uh, the Coinbase L2 talk, I've got Arbitrum on the cool throne. They announced BOLD last week, which stands for Bounded Liquidity Delay, and it's basically a dispute protocol, and it represents, in my opinion, one of the most progressive attempts at a, a large ETH L2 actually trying to decentralize to date. Um, today, how Arbitrum works is it's basically a permission set of validators who can submit challenges if they detect uh, an invalid state transition. Um, but Bold is going to make it so that anyone can participate in the dispute process and uh, make sure that the chain is actually operating as it should be and in an honest manner. Um, so it's it's honestly super cool. Uh, any chain can use it. It's like super modular. So any orbital chain uh, or maybe Nova or Arbitrum 1. And then they're also going to let the DAO vote whether they want to actually implement the protocol. It hasn't gone live on testnet yet. So um, definitely keep an eye out on that. But it has been audited by Trail of Bits. Uh, and honestly, just in general, it's a really good step forward for, for ETH L2. So you guys got an extra cool throne this week. I go a step further. I'd say Arbitrum's the only L2. Like, what is an L2? You know, you're trying to rely on Ethereum security. Okay. With a permissioned set of people who can submit fraud proofs, is is it really an L2? Like, eh, not really, but it's a, it's the closest thing we have today. It's better than, uh, you know, a multi-sig controlling the bridge like some of their optimistic roll-up counterparts. Or every, every L2 today has a lot of points of centralization. And this was really the last thing that Arbitrum, actually the second to last thing that Arbitrum really has to figure out before it's like truly fully decentralized layer two on top of Ethereum. The last one being the Security Council, which is like nine members who can veto any governance proposals or push anything through a nine of 12 multi-sig, sorry. Um, but yeah, like this is a huge step. And just for reference, like the reason it's so hard is because if you let anyone submit fraud proofs, right, then I'm going to go, if I'm a malicious actor, I'm going to go submit a, that every single transaction is, is malicious and I'm going to halt the network. So it's like a denial of service attack on Arbitrum or any other L2. So finding a solution to this is like a huge step forward and has been something that the optimistic rollup teams have been thinking about for years now. So this is the first real good attempt at it and very, very exciting. Yeah, they did say in the blog post too that there's an upper bound of seven days for this process. So like you said, like those denial of service attacks can't happen in their their scheme as at least they believe believe so. So that's, that's super interesting. And then on top of that, um, 
there was another point I was going to make, but I'm blanking on it right now. So I don't know, Ren, Dan, do you have anything to say about this? I think it's interesting that they're leaving this up to the DAO to vote. I, I doubt this will happen, but I think one super interesting scenario would be for whatever reason, the DAO votes against uh, this sort of like protocol upgrade. I think that would be like a super whack now totally plausible i'm not sure why anyone would vote against it but totally plausible maybe they think there's like some technical risk or like no one really understands it and just guys just vote um but no i i agree with both your points sam and matt that this is a big step in sort of like decentralizing the protocol can the l3s that are built on top of uh arbitrum can they do they have any sort of cross uh, like cross native interop between the two l3s is that or is that not possible yeah, so L3s is like kind of a misnomer, but whatever. It just means that it, it uses Arbitrum's inbox, meaning it uses the same sequencer and settles with you know Arbitrum transactions back to L1. So all Arbitrum orbit chains, the L3s and Arbitrum are are synchronously composable. The, wait, so the L3s also post directly on the L1? The L3s don't post to the L2? Correct. With, with optimistic rollups, L3s are a bit of a... Yeah, an L3 in, in an optimistic rollup looks very different than an L3 in a ZK rollup. Interesting. Okay. Today I learned. Technically, you could say like that off-chain labs would probably give me give me some shit for that and say like, yes, it does settle here. But by settle here, it means that the transactions go into the same inbox contract on in Arbitrum. Yeah, that was a good question though, Dan. And I, the point that I had forgotten a little bit earlier was just that there could be infinite number of malicious validators uh you know disputing your valid uh fraud proof essentially and as long as there's just one honest validator then it's going to work like the chain will go back to its correct state so that i just thought that was a pretty cool takeaway as well but dan you want to take it home and tell the folks about the atom accelerator a little bit i do indeed i do indeed so as always like to give a little shout out to our wonderful sponsor the atom accelerator who is looking to improve the quality of builder in the atom economic zone we want to bring more attention more effort and uh, ultimately more funding into building within this uh kind of uh subdivision within the cosmos ecosystem that's really focused on you know improving the atom as atom as money and you know really just driving home what the atom economic zone uh can do you know we've seen a lot of success in ethereum DeFi, and we kind of want to replicate some of that um over in the cosmos ecosystem so uh i was just talking about native cross-chain interoperability which you know the cosmos atom economic zone has this with ibc and it also has interchain security and things like stride and duality i've leveraged this to kind of, uh, kind of help push forward the innovation that's going on over here uh, we'll soon have native usdc uh, coming to the ecosystem with the launch of noble uh, and so again if you're looking to build within this ecosystem check out the atom economic zone we'll put a link in the description and they are giving funding uh, on a rolling monthly basis ranging from ten thousand to one million dollars so again this is like this is a caller to the builders if you're looking for a great if you have a great idea that you're just looking to get kickstarted be sure to check out the link in the description. So we are joined by two members of the Athena team, Connor and Guy. I want you guys to uh, intro yourselves and maybe tell the audience a little bit about the protocol Athena. My name is Connor. I'm leading research at Athena. Um, before then, I had a traditional finance background, working for a pension fund for about four years. So about as far away as you can get from crypto. Uh, and then about two years ago, I made the decision yet to get into crypto um, professionally. Uh, so I joined Kaiko, who are market data provider and I, I sat in the research team there um so i spent nearly two years there 
talking about kind of market liquidity um, from like an asset and exchange level as well, but with also kind of two main focuses on stable coins and derivatives. So it was already kind of aligned in my interest with Athena um, and as well kind of spent my time writing about the need for a stable coin like Athena are building in the space. So yeah, when I heard kind of what Athena was doing, I was immediately on board um, and yeah, I'll let Guy take it from there. Cool. Yeah. So my name is Guy. Started my career in, in traditional finance as well. So uh, initially, that was in investment banking, working in London, and then moved to a US uh, private equity slash hedge fund in the US. Uh, we focus primarily on financial services. So we're looking at everything from buying banks to insurance companies, fintechs, and then distressed debt situations as well. Um, I sort of got into crypto. I had a friend who was a DeFi founder back in 2019, um, and I was straight into, into DeFi back then and uh was was sort of doing that on the side of my day job um until midway through 22 when luna collapsed and it was uh just after luna had sort of gone down arthur hayes came out with one of his thought pieces around how we might think about a, a crypto native dollar that that could truly sort of live outside of the banking system and actually scale and uh yeah read his piece and uh quit my job like three days later to start uh building out what we're doing with athena that's awesome. I love to hear it. So can you kind of explain why you think a, a decentralized stablecoin is so important? And maybe if you could touch on that Arthur Hayes piece a bit and explain maybe some of the inspiration you took, but also how the actual implementation Athena is going after is going to be different. Yeah, sure. So I might just start on the why I think it's important. I think um, what is crypto trying to do? It's trying to create sort of a parallel financial system that sits outside of the existing one. But um the most important financial instrument in crypto is a stablecoin, and it's completely tethered to the existing system. So I think most of what we're trying to do in DeFi is a bit of a joke if if basically the most important asset is is completely centralized. So I think we've, we've sort of seen in the last year as well um, just how important it is to actually just have something that we can be self-sufficient with, um, whether that's SVB at the beginning of the year or what you saw with Paxos um, and Binance sort of getting shut down. I think it's becoming more and more evident that we actually need sort of a solution that exists within crypto and, and we can sort of depend on. Um, yeah, Arthur's basic idea was, um, and it's there's been previous iterations that have, have attempted a similar thing, is basically long a crypto asset on one side and then short a perpetual on the other. And those two things coming together creates a synthetic dollar position out of those two positions netting off. Uh, Arthur's core idea was around Bitcoin, just around uh, the size and scalability of that market. And he was pretty insistent on this not trying to be purely decentralized. So you sort of have to accept the fact that centralized liquidity is needed to actually scale this to a size that's actually meaningful for both ourselves and then actually uh, users who, who want to come to the product. And so, yeah, we took the idea, two small adjustments around uh, swapping out Bitcoin for staked ETH initially. Um, Bitcoin is sort of something that is possible further down the road. And then the other piece was just around how we think about creating interesting connective tissue between DeFi and CeFi, where we we agreed that you need centralized liquidity to get this to work, but we thought that there were pieces of DeFi that we wanted to retain. And that was sort of transparency and making sure that the collateral was sitting off of centralized exchange servers. And so we think we found a pretty interesting uh, middle ground between keeping assets off of an exchange uh, so you reduce the counterparty risk to exchanges and then still be, uh, you know, able to access that liquidity. So what's the perk of of kind of finding this? Uh, I don't necessarily want to call it a hybrid solution because I think it does uh, keep a lot of the core ethos of DeFi. It's just kind of like giving the the takeoff there. The trade off is, you know, you are leveraging some of the liquidity on central exchanges. So I guess like the question comes, you know, why is it? Is this like pr help promote scalability? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think maybe just background in terms of how I philosophically think about the space. I'm, I think a bit more pragmatic than than other founders who are maybe in the space. I think you sometimes see people who either are trying to produce products that are that are scalable and useful for like millions of people, or you sometimes get idealists who are just super focused on like broad definitions of decentralization, which are only really interesting to a hundred to a thousand people. Um, I definitely fall in sort of the the camp of the former, which is I'm more focused on producing a product that's actually useful for people and then walking back towards decentralization. And so I think for us as a team, we sort of ask ourselves the question of um, what is it actually within decentralization that you care about when you're not trading on an exchange? And for us, it's just looking back to FTX, which is you just don't want your assets sitting on FTX when that sort of situation um, unfolds. And being able to disaggregate custody from trading and execution is actually a step change improvement from from what we had. And this is sort of how traditional market structures work in the real world, which is those those sort of three functions being jammed together is at like a complete abnormality within within crypto versus normal markets. And I think it's our view that um, that's going to change over the next 12 months. And we just want to be part of that. Are there any existing stablecoin designs that you think like did something really interesting? Of course, outside of the, the one you're building. But I'm curious to see like, you know, did you like uh, leverage the ideas that have been you know tested and tried? Or like, how do you think about the existing landscape and, and maybe some interesting things that are currently exist? One that we were kind of quite aligned with, I guess, was UXD. Um, so they also adopted like a delta neutral approach on Solana decentralized per markets the the issue with them was that they couldn't really scale so they, they could scale on a collateral side of things so essentially like delta neutral strategy hedging your collateral one-to-one allows you to kind of adopt an, a near 100 collateral ratio and um, so they were scalable from that side of things but the fact that they relied kind of solely on decentralized perpetuals on solana they couldn't really scale to the size that was needed and um, so from that that side of things, we thought there was a definite improvement that was needed um, and hence the kind of CFI connectivity that we're making. Um, also, like liquidity is interesting. Um, but then you've kind of got a lot of stable coins popping up now. And I think generally it's like a comment on DeFi in the last few months that there's been a lot of stable coins um, and protocols kind of using staked Ethereum and like forking old DeFi protocols and using staked Ethereum on top of things probably sounds ironic coming from a protocol that's doing something similar, but that's not our main kind of our main value add. Um, so yeah, there's been a kind of, I guess, a lack of innovation in the space right now. Um, and yeah, a lot of those stable coins, they're needed from a, like a decentralized standpoint. It is good to have a decentralized, like a fully decentralized alternative. But the problem is they just can't really scale. Um, we kind of know that by now. We've seen plenty of examples of stable coins that, that need like 150, 160% collateralization because they take on obviously the fully decentralized collateral in Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, what we're doing is obviously taking on fully decentralized collateral, but we're obviously making trade-offs and trying to get that CFI connectivity to access that kind of liquidity so that you can kind of, you can scale it into the size, the size you want to actually reach like a hundred million users rather than let's say a thousand kind of DeFi whales. So I think it'd be helpful if you guys just kind of walked us through the process of like, if I'm a user and I want to mint $10,000 of USDE, where am I going? What collateral do I provide? What's actually happening underneath the hood? And when I want to redeem it, what does that process look like as well? Yeah, sure. So um, we try and abstract away a lot of the complication that sort of sits in the back end for the users. So what, what we're basically doing is providing a pretty simple front end that looks quite similar to when you derive at something that looks like Uniswap. So you'd be coming with either dollars, ETH or Steve. And uh, 
you can deposit any of those assets and we're going to have like the system at the back which sort of aligns our collateral to put on the hedges that we need in the background so if you're actually just coming with dollars you can sort of swap directly into into usde or if you're coming with steve uh, or eth we're basically taking that collateral um we have an off-chain server that's basically reading the contract that receives uh the collateral coming through from the user it's running a pretty simple computation to say where is funding most efficient across the market to deploy that collateral and so that's reading exchange APIs, which are external and outside of DeFi, and then also uh, DeFi platforms as well. It's uh, basically making an assessment that can you take that entire collateral and deploy it on one venue, or do you need to split that up bet between different venues to, to um, make execution as, as efficient as possible? And then it's basically saying, we need to send this collateral to X exchange. You're then going to distribute that to an off-exchange custody solution, uh, so that uh, that's where the collateral is actually held. That will be with custodians that uh, you'll be familiar with, um, guys like Copper, uh, Fidelity, um, all of, sort of the big names there, Five Blocks. Uh, and the key piece there is that the collateral is actually sitting um, outside of the exchange. When the collateral hits that wallet, an API call is sent uh, to the exchange to say, we need to hedge this exact amount of Notional um, uh, right now. And when we receive the API call back from the exchange to say, that, that hedge has actually been executed, we can we can issue USD to the user on the other side. And so the key piece there is that we can only issue that stablecoin once we have confirmation that the, the delta has actually been hedged because we as a protocol can't take on the, the sort of naked tail risk that ETH price moves and you haven't actually hedged yourself in, the, in that period. So I think from, from a user perspective, it'll look quite sim uh, simple and similar to, to what people have seen, which is arrive with dollars or, or staked ETH collateral in the background that's sort of the mechanism that, that's taking place what does the timing of that look like so if i go to the front end and make a deposit the transaction has to occur uh on chain and then the off-chain server needs to read the transaction and ex uh, execute some computation or some logic to f uh, fill the hedge and then once the hedge is filled uh, it kind of needs to like ping it back to the smart contract in some way so like what's the what's the feedback time look like yeah, so the, the actual uh, request that you're putting in as a user at the front end is more of a signature request, a uh, bit similar to when you're going to, to one of the aggregators like uh, a 0x or a matcher, that type of thing. You're, you're signaling an intent that you want that hedge to be to be executed. And then you've got to remember that everything that's sort of occurring on a CFI level is like microseconds rather than seconds. Um, and so before the next block is actually confirmed within Ethereum, we already know has that hedge been executed and can we issue the, the USD on the other side? And so it's not going to be any slower than what you'd sort of see on chain with, with other protocols because all of the off-chain infrastructure just operates at 100x uh, the speed of everything on chain. Okay, so that makes a ton of sense. And when we think about the actual hedge itself, like how do you think about the the venues that you're using? Is it just kind of like if you have liquidity or interest, whether that be on-chain or whether that be off-chain, um, or do you have like some sort of risk tolerance for which venues you're interested in using? Yeah, we, we obviously need basic risk controls around this whole thing. I think uh, two simple examples I could give you is, uh, let's say, funding on whatever exchange, pick your exchange, Bybit is better than the market. We can't have 90% of the portfolio sitting on Bybit if they represent 10 to 15% of the market. There needs to be basic controls around, A, what is your contribution to, to that exchange uh, relative to market share across, um, across the space? And then also, what is your percentage of open interest on that exchange itself? So there are basic caps around how big can we be on a single venue, because then you start to really influence um, sort of funding rates and liquidity on that venue. And then uh, sort of global risk parameters around 
does the portfolio that you have um, uh, within Athena accurately uh, sort of represent the, the market share across the market? Okay, okay. Now that's super interesting. And then, um, so I'm curious, like, I guess the obvious question then is, uh, when funding rates go negative for an extended period of time, I know you guys have done some extensive research on like what this has looked like over the last three years um, and kind of how that would impact the the asset itself. But if, when funding rate is negative for an extended period of time, like how does that impact uh, the protocol? Yeah, sure. So um, do you want me to run through the, the pieces why we're not concerned about that or just literally the, uh, the sort of the downside and what actually plays out in reality? Uh, do the, the the latter part, and then like why you're not concerned about that being being a factor. Sure. Um, yeah. So you can basically just think about it: is we have a liability to the exchange that we need to pay out that funding every eight hours. The source of those funds is going to be the principal of the stablecoin. So if we can't take the yield from stake ETH to cover that, and we don't have a sufficient size insurance fund to to pay out that cash, you need to start actually using the principal of the stablecoin itself to pay out the funding on the other side. I would characterize this risk very differently to some of the collapses that you've sort of seen in the past, where this is a very slow attrition of the principal through time, rather than something that collapses to, to zero in, in, in a short uh, period of time. Um, I think the other piece just to, to highlight around this risk is that it would be quite strange, I think, for that to persist through time, because uh, a user can see that there is a negative yield that's attached to, to the instrument, um, and that's going to be pretty obvious to people um, on the app itself. And so for people to continue holding something that has a negative yield and that you know is going to um, experience a slow attrition through time is quite a strange sort of user behavior where we would expect people to actually step out of the product uh, when funding does go negative. I think the interesting piece about that is that when users start to step out of that product, you lift the short on the exchanges, and that the process of doing so actually starts to lift funding rates across the market because uh, you reduce sort of short short interest across the market. So, we like the funding rate is 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 a risk to this whole thing, and there are um, a bunch of different risks with, with all kinds of stablecoins. Um, but I think the one here is actually uh, it's part of the mechanism design, and we actually do quite like it, which is you have an exogenous interest rate which um, acts as sort of like an anti-reflexive mechanism where if supply is contracting too quickly and you're lifting shorts as a response, that's actually going to mean revert the funding rate above zero and people are attracted back into the product. And on the other side of that is when it's going too quickly, you're going to be pulling down funding rates across the market. The product is less attractive for people to come in. And then so naturally sort of the, the growth in the stablecoin slows down. So where some designs in the past were super reflexive on the way up and down, I think that this is actually going to exhibit characteristics which are which are in contrast to that. So I had my two cents there for the funding rates. Like kind of the, the key there is like that they're mean reverting. And we kind of did a lot of research there over the last few weeks on the actual kind of like the distribution of funding rates. Um, so there's a bunch of different things that kind of help like keep funding rates positive. Um, there's baseline fund, positive baseline funding on some of the biggest exchanges. So Binance and Bybit have like positive baseline funding of 0.01%. Um, and that's like 50% of open interest you're looking at there between Binance and Bybit. Um, and then you've also just got like, yeah, a lot of kind of market dynamics. Crypto tends to be kind of long biased anyway. There's a lack, there's kind of a supply demand imbalance. We've got the demand side is there. Definitely. We know kind of how DGN crypto people are and they want to be, they want to go long crypto. Um, but there's no real supply side, definitely in the derivatives market anyway. A lot of institutions aren't at the stage that, uh, yet where they're willing to kind of lend that capital to counter that demand side. Um, so naturally, kind of funding rates have sat positive and we've seen that. So like 
funding rates are mean reverting, but they also kind of are, are skewed to the, the, the long side as well. So the like kind of the, the longest streak of days we've seen like positive funding rates has been nine to nine days. And that was set like this year. Um, and the longest negative streak of funding rates we've seen daily uh, has been 13 days. So there's a lot of kind of points to be reassured about there with funding rates that, that they've shown up until now. Um, obviously still very early days. They've only been around for about three years, but um, there's a lot of kind of yeah, reassurance that they are one mean reverting and also at the moment they skew positive. Uh, and is the idea on the other side of that in order to spark demand for USDE going to be returning some of that yield to the stablecoin holders? And if so, is it like a seed token model where like the amount that's claimable, like the underlying pool grows. So like the amount you can, you know, redeem USDE for will gradually increase over time. Yeah, it's correct. It look a bit like a, a bolt. Um, and that's obviously only eligible to, to some users outside of like uh, certain jurisdictions. There is sort of a bit of sensitivity around that piece. But um, yeah, the idea is that uh, one of the largest deficiencies we see within USDC and USDT is that they sort of externalize all of the risk of the product onto users and then internalize all of the yield to themselves, which we think is a pretty crazy construct as a product, but um, is is pretty like indicative of how strong the, the actual demand for stable coins is, right? Like you're actually telling people, you take all of the risk, we're going to keep all the return, and there's still $130 billion of demand for a product like that. So uh, we think the opportunity is quite interesting where you can actually start to share some of that with, with users on the other side. Um, I think the other piece, just to get to your question around sort of distribution and how we're thinking about holders actually getting um, uh, coming into the product is, uh, I generally think people underrate um, the idea of distribution for stablecoins quite a bit. Um, we tend to sort of solve interesting academic problems within DeFi, but then forget about how is this actually ending up in the hands of users on the other side. I think one thing that looks quite unique about us is... Um, we obviously have quite a few centralized exchanges as investors and then also as platforms that we're going to be um, integrating and trading on. It's worthwhile just remembering where we could potentially be a really large and interesting fee opportunity for these exchanges because every dollar of notional that we're creating on the stablecoin requires a dollar of derivatives being traded on the exchange. Um, so those numbers get pretty big when you start um, extrapolating out stablecoin supplies like into the billions. And so to the extent that you can actually incentivize exchanges on the other side to say, you're actually going to see fees, not only in the generation of this product, but actually potentially as part of the yield that's being generated. Um, that's a really interesting sort of carrot to then incentivize exchanges to distribute your product on the other side. So my perspective on this is rather than us going to find 10 million, 100 million users ourselves, why not actually create a product that's compelling for, yes, some people on chain, but actually just make a compelling product for five exchanges, which have 100 million users on the other side, and let them distribute to those users uh, for you with the right sort of incentives that sit around that. So I think that is a slightly different piece of this approach. And again, is why we see sort of our connections to centralized exchanges as quite important for, for the product. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. And when you noted the piece about, you know, USDC or Circle and Tether, for example, uh, kind of internalizing all of the revenue generation that the collateral assets are making is, is a great point. But, uh, you know, what that ultimately ends up becoming is a, is a phenomenal business. Those, those two entities are raking in cash. So from a, looking at the protocol from more of like a business lens, you know, how is the protocol going to generate revenue? Is there like a take rate uh, on some of the, the yield being generated? Yeah, so I think you can, um, very simple numbers here, like stake ETH yield somewhere between 4 to 6%. The basis in the futures market if you include the bear market of 22 over the last three years, 
is somewhere between five to seven and a half percent. So when you add those two numbers together, it's actually a pretty interesting unlevered yield, which gives you a lot of room for maneuver to, to think about how you distribute that yield. Um, my view here is, is um, maybe slightly nuanced in terms of how you think about that distribution to users where really what you're competing with, um, to some extent, you're competing with like risk-free rates in the real world, but there's clearly a lot of trap capital within crypto that um, hasn't gone out to, to fetch those yields and is still sort of sitting there in USDC and USDT. Really, like the hurdle rate that you're trying to clear uh, is either zero with those products or like a very, um, uh, what is quite a small yield now in DeFi, uh, roughly three to 4% uh, in terms of what you can get on dollars in some of those blue chip uh, DeFi product, uh, protocols. And so if you're actually earning somewhere between eight to 12 on the asset side for this product in normal conditions and the rest of the market's at three or four, um, I'm not convinced that you need to pay out the full 12% to users to still attract them into the product. And that gives you a pretty large scope to um, to capture some of that to the insurance fund uh, within the protocol. So the idea here is that the, whatever's being captured by the protocol from that yield is going to capitalize the insurance fund to sort of make it a more safe and secure product going forward. And it gives, gives us the optionality to start thinking about other products like, do you want to add Bitcoin? Do you want to add ETH without ETH? And all of those sort of uh, ways that you can think about um, scaling the product even more. Okay, very, very interesting there. And I want to quickly jump back to scalability. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you know, it kind of has this like self-correcting uh, mechanism where if the funding rate does go negative, you'd expect users to kind of exit the product and that ultimately takes um, some of the open interest off of the perps market and reduce it or increases, in this case, uh, the funding rate. So with that being said, that to me, it sounds like the scalability of the product is tethered to the amount of liquidity available on the perp side of the market. Uh, like, would you? Because I imagine, you know, if it does rapidly increase in um, in total supply, then you'd eventually like find this equilibrium point where you know there's like based on the total, maybe it's like maxing out the total amount of liquidity on the perps market, um, and it's you know the users are kind of like keeping it balanced there as as funding rate goes negative. Is there like a way? to imagine what that size is, or is that just like, you know, kind of like an impossible question? Um, we can give like rough numbers for the market as it exists today. Um, and then the sort of views about how that might sort of evolve going forward in time. Um, I think one thing that we might just point towards is, is something that we saw at the back end of 22. I, I don't know if you guys remember the ETH proof of work arbitrage trade that went on there where uh, traders will long spot ETH on one side and then short the futures on the other to collect the risk-free um, sort of uh, proof of work airdrop on the other side. Conceptually, that's very similar to what we're doing here, right? Which is your long staked ETH on one side and then using the same derivative instrument um, on the other side. And um, what we actually saw from the data in that period was that open interest on exchanges went from 8 billion to 16 and then back to eight in the space of two weeks. Um, and that was all in a pretty orderly way, which to us was actually a pretty strong signal that if there is a demand to expand the derivative market for a specific use case, which in that case was quite similar to what we're doing, um, the market can sort of handle those flows in, in a reasonably orderly way. Um, that's not to say that I don't think some of those uh, yield dynamics that I was describing earlier don't change through time. So I think natural compression of staked ETH yields um, through time is expected, like bull market aside, uh, depending on what sort of happens with activity on chain. And then naturally, as this product grows through time, I think it's reasonable to assume that that basis within the futures market does get compressed as well going forward. Um, but that's going to be a natural um, outcome of us doing our job successfully on the other side. So 
Uh, I do think that there are limitations, absolutely, if you're thinking about just stake deep collateral right now with the derivative market as it exists today. Um, but there are um, obviously different avenues that you can start using other collateral like Bitcoin going forward. And there's no there's no sort of um, mathematical reason that the derivative market can't be a multiple of spot markets going forward, which is actually what you see in traditional markets um, across a bunch of different instruments. So um, at the moment, perhaps as a per uh, percentage of ETH market cap, sub 10%, so somewhere between five to eight, depending on when you look, that has like a lot of room to grow um, to, to support this product going forward. Um, and it's pretty natural, I think, as, as more institutions come into the space, that t tends to be the product that they actually um, um, tend towards. Now, you mentioned in the beginning of the chat that USD, Steeth, as in Lido, Steeth, and then ETH will be, you know, eligible to be deposited on the front end. So do you mean like USDC and USDT? Or do you mean US dollars on the ex centralized exchange side? And then also like the raw ETH that gets deposited, does that ultimately get staked by you guys? Like, is the whole entire product ultimately converted to staked ETH and then hedged accordingly? Uh, kind of, yeah. So if, you, if you're coming with dollars, actually what's functionally happening is you're just going to be hitting a, a curve pool or an AMM on the side. And in the process of that curve pool becoming imbalanced, market makers are going to perform the arbitrage against the mint and redeem contract um, of the protocol. Um, and so it's not actually users who are coming in with dollars to swap into Steeth um, or ETH on the other side. It's actually them swapping into dollars in an AMM and then the market maker sort of closing that loop, uh, which sort of kicks kickstarts that whole mechanism that I described earlier. Um, if we are re receiving ETH, yes, we will be distributing them to, to different staked ETH providers. Uh, that could include Lido. It could include more like enterprise grade staking solutions like Luvial, um, or even exchange native stake products. So as you know, Binance has a pretty big um, stake product. Coinbase does uh, um, OKX as well. And there's pretty sort of interesting rebate opportunities that you can get for the users on the other side there, which is if you're taking an ETH and depositing into those those staked uh, products, you can actually try to get a bit of a kickback to the users on the other side. Um, so yeah, uh, functionally that is what's happening. And uh, I think to your question around how does that interact with exchange front ends going forward, this is clearly quite an interesting product to be sitting behind one of those earn pages um, on an exchange front end where they sort of abstract away that complexity for users to basically just deposit into this product on the back end to, um, again, as we sort of said, distribute our product, but actually just get a yield for their users on the other side. Okay, that's super interesting because my next question was going to be, are you at all worried about Steeth and Lido dominance? Because that's obviously a hot topic amongst the Ethereum community and you guys are like going to be very reliant on the health of the Ethereum network itself. So I guess I was going to say, are you going to try and reduce your alliance on Steeth over time and expand the market share more evenly amongst like other staking providers? But would your answer just be that? Like, yes, if Steeth dominance got super high, ETH, raw ETH deposits and US dollar deposits, you just you know, sprinkle into other providers? Is that kind of like the answer to that question? Yeah, I think Connor does have some views in this. So I might just pass it on to him as well. But um, you just got to remember that we have a lot of platform dependence on what other people require rather than us sort of um, driving that decision. So um, if we just simplify that question into what's more important of liquidity and decentralization, uh, you won't be surprised to know that um, exchanges care more about the liquidity piece in terms of using that as collateral. And we just need to think about our users, which is how do things go wrong on our side? That's with liquidity. It's, I, I think, a, a far lower probability that sort of decentralization is something that actually um, is is uh, a core reason why what we're doing fails. That's not to say it's not important. I think there's a lot of really intelligent and um, 
important discussions going on around that topic. It's just not something that we should be leading because it's not the biggest risk, I think, to, to what we're doing. The biggest risk to what we're doing is making sure that collateral is liquid and we can put on the positions for our users in the right way. So I don't mean to sort of deflect away from that question. I just think um, we have different um, things that we're focusing on versus other LST providers who are more focused on that decentralization piece. I'm more focused on making sure that things are liquid and, uh, and allow us to sort of provide the best product that we can for our users. Yeah, yeah, my point on that was like kind of on the same page. Guy covered it there pretty well, but um, I, like it's just like kind of personal thing, but I'm not sure, yeah, how much kind of risk management you're doing or reduction of risk by taking on other forms of, of staked Ethereum. Um, so Lido dominance isn't something that really concerns me right now. Like it, it's kind of dominant for a reason, and that's because it's got like the best validator said, it's, it's been battle tested. It's got like obviously very good market traction and it has enough to pay a good validator set. Whereas these smaller kind of um, liquid staking tokens right now haven't haven't got that kind of market traction yet. You're nearly it's not like you're diver diversifying by taking 10% Steeth, 10% Rockapooli, 10% whatever else. I think you're actually potentially adding more risk by kind of diversifying away a lot of a lot of uh, the staked Ethereum allocation. So as Guy said, it's kind of not something we're concerned with right now. It's probably more of a question for the, the Ethereum ecosystem as a whole, um, and it's probably. It's probably far down our, our yeah our initial kind of uh, our risk uh, preferences right now. Let's say. Yeah, no, I, I see where you're coming from on that point. As as a builder, you know, you got to focus on what's best for your users. So that makes a ton of sense. Your perspective makes a ton of sense there. Um, I do have one question as it relates to Steve. So if that's the collateral asset being used, then you're long spot staked ETH, but shorting the perp of ETH itself. And is there like a, I guess like if Steeth were to depeg, which of course with withdrawals lie, that's not the most likely scenario. Uh, staked ETH holders also have the ability to force exit validators. So there's like a lot of good place guards in there. But in the event that some, you know, crazy situation did happen where there's a material DPEG in staked ETH, uh, wouldn't that like create a gap in between, because you do have a bit of a mismatch there, right? Like it is not the same exact asset on the perp and the spot side. Uh, so how do you guys think about the risks involved there? Yeah, so there there is absolutely a basis risk there that you're pointing out. I think um, you sort of got to one of my responses there before I did, which was um, I think post Chappelle that risk is, is slightly less pronounced than it was uh, when we sort of saw, um, it wasn't, it's not really a DPEG, but like the the dislocation in pricing uh, down to whatever it was like low 90s when three hours was blowing up. Um, I don't think we see things as deep as that going forward, but um, that's not to rule out um, a small uh, sort of dislocation in that price. One piece I'll just point out around what we're doing is um, we don't really use any leverage on the short. So um, if we're running a highly levered strategy over there and the Oracle price was with reference to, to Stake Teeth's actual price, um, that would sort of run up, run the risk of us obviously getting liquidated on that account for, for our users. So uh, part of what like our philosophy around this is just try to keep it sort of simple and safe and secure to just make this thing stable for users rather than uh, push push sort of the boundary in terms of returns and introducing leverage there. Um, so that's one piece. And then the other one is just more of a question of sort of timing um, where if every single user wanted all of their money out at the exact same time, that would force you to crystallize that loss um, on withdrawal uh, because you'd have to take that collateral and give it back to the user, which doesn't represent the dollar that they thought they put in. Uh, if this is something that's a temporary sort of issue over a day, you lose 50% of your TVL, but you still got half of it sort of sitting there and it, it can sort of like recover in that period of time and, um, and the basis can sort of close. Uh, that's sort of fine because you haven't crystallized the loss, you sort of got through it. 
that obviously exists with normal stable coins. I'll just point out where uh, a lot of the risk that you saw with bonds blowing up in the in the real world in the last sort of year was a question of are you actually redeeming now to crystallize that loss on the mark to market value of those of those bonds? So really, it's actually exactly the same um, sort of risk there. It's, it's just a question of how are you managing that duration risk, which is does everyone want their money out at the exact same time that you have that dislocation in pricing? Um, so I'm not going to discount the risk, but I think. Um, Pre-Chapello, this product probably wasn't possible. And I think that was sort of a, a huge uh, tailwind for us to be able to do this. So will it be one-to-one? -one, or are you guys thinking about adding like a 5-10% buffer just in case of like doomsday scenarios occurring or like allowing even more time to potentially de-risk and wind down a portion of the stable? And then also, have you guys thought about maybe putting caps in place in relation to the size of the insurance fund just for like ultimate safety? Yeah, I think uh, so. That's the perhaps of the, the the insurance fund. So, like the effective collateralization of the system will be more than one because you've got that pool of uh, dollars basically sitting behind the stablecoin. Uh, the perhaps of that is uh, for the negative funding risk that we described, but then also to add, um, it can sort of be a bidder as well of last resort. Because I think one interesting characteristic of this stablecoin is that you can prove in real time that the whole thing is solvent because you have the collateral there where you can sort of uh, read and, and show users and you've got the derivative positions, uh, which again, you can read and show users. So it's sort of like a, a real time um, uh, value that you can actually make an assessment of, is this thing solvent? And to the extent that like the market value of the stablecoin is trading off of where you know the solvency of the stablecoin exists. So if you can prove that there's a dollar that's sitting behind it and it's trading at 95 cents on curve, is there an interesting sort of solution where that insurance fund is also a bidder of, of uh, the open market USDE? And then you basically socialize those gains between uh, token holders on the other side. So we know that people are going to panic at some point in time going forward, and you can't sort of control the free market price uh, moving in panic. But I think there's an interesting sort of um, role that that insurance fund can play in also providing basically a bid uh, to socialize those gains with, with token holders afterwards. And you can only do that when you can prove that the system is actually collateralized at one um, and that is programmatic. Yeah, that's a super interesting idea because I was going to ask, you know, what do you expect the volatility of the stable to be? Um, you know, granted, like if you really want it to be prime stable coin for DeFi usage, you want that peg ideally to be as strong as possible. So I was curious as a follow up question to that, like, were you planning on a PSM of sorts? But it kind of sounds like that insurance fund might be used for peg stability. Yeah, I think only in, in proper dislocations, I, I don't think we'd want to be interfering with sort of normal market um, uh, normal market gyrations around the price. So uh, I think you've just got to let the free market do its thing most of the time. But I think if there's a very obvious and defined level that you can uh, you can define relative to the solvency of the stablecoin, where that can be a sort of bitter of last resort, um, I do think that that's an interesting use of that capital, which actually benefits all of the token holders as well going forward. Um, so, yeah. And yeah, we're working pretty closely with um, the way that the Mint of Redeem contract as well works is pretty similar to, uh, to USDC, where uh, it's usually um, known counterparties to us who can do the actual Mint and Redeem. So unfortunately, that's not going to be totally permissionless where the Mint and Redeem is done by any user. It, it's sort of done by primarily market makers who, who carry out that function, which is similar to USDC. But when it's sort of out in the wild, in the same way that you can hold USDC without KYC, and without permission within DeFi, um, that's sort of how most users are going to get access to, to USDE. And so, yeah, the um, we're going to have sort of market makers around this protocol in a 
pretty involved way and they're obviously going to play a role uh to some degree in in uh that pegs do you need any like protection to the upside here right because if we look at die and its history there was uh you know its moment i think it was black thursday where borrowers were rapidly trying to repurchase die on the open market to repay their loans as ethereum the price of eth was crashing and of course there's like a liquidation risk there right like uh when you're in these over collateralized stable coins it's because you're risking liquidation at the end of the day um which doesn't really seem like it'd be a case here but i'm curious to get your take like is there ever a situation where you know people that have minted eusd and maybe swapped it into like eth or some other thing like rapidly want to close their position and um you know reclaim their staked eth from the protocol like that would create a you know a surge in demand that could potentially increase the price of the stable coin so like yeah, I guess, you know, like we've seen Go from Aave recently launched that launch with no stability mechanism, so no PSM or AMOs. Uh, and that thing's been trading around 98 cents basically since launch. And, you know, they're working towards getting a PSM live. But that's really kind of seen, we've seen this trend where like you sort of need an AMO or a, a PSM model uh, to kind of kickstart there. So do you have any like risks with, you know, even, even DPEGs to the upside? Yeah, I think the, the DPEGs to the upside are interesting because um, I think it's more of a question of why does that not close down? Um, when it does DPEG upwards. Um, and it's traditionally something that you see, as, as you pointed out, with CDP-type designs, where I think that sort of arbitrage loop of defining the, the stablecoin to be one within the lending protocol and then expecting people to sort of repay debt when it's below there or add collateral is just a bit sort of clunky versus something that's super efficient where market makers are plugged in with APIs and you know it's all done in a completely algorithmic way to, to, to keep our peg in line. Um, I think one question that you had around the, the market crash piece, which I think is, is quite interesting here, is that, as you pointed out with, with DAI, when we, when we had um, that, that market crash, people are sort of buying to repay debt, and that pushes the, the price up. Um, what's function, functionally happening to us on the other side is that in a market crash, you sometimes see dislocations in, in perp pricing versus spot. And so sometimes you see the perps actually trade whatever, 10, 15, 20% out of line versus spot. Uh, that would be actually a pretty concerning risk, I think, if the design of this had us long on those exchanges, on long, long perps. But actually, because always the positioning is to the short side, when things are melting down, it actually tends to sort of work in your favor, um, where the whole market dislocates, it breaks down, and you're actually positioned on the short side. You thought that you were hedged for $100 of Notional, and it turns out that the perp is priced at, at uh, 110 on the other side. And so you can actually collect sort of that, that extra PL if the market breaks in your way. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm not sort of saying that's part of the design here, which is uh, we're trying to pick up like strange PNL um, opportunities through the way. Um, I do think it's interesting though that on those market dislocations, it's likely that you are positioned in the right way um, where things are breaking down. It, it's most likely it sort of works in your favor. Is there a plan for on the user interface to just have very clear insight into like where the backing is, the collateralization, like what's the plan for transparency on that front? Yeah, I mean, th this is like absolutely cool to our approach. I think we look back on the last few years and I think um, a lot of the reason for the blowups that you saw in the last few years was actually just um, uh, an arrogance from a lot of founders who didn't want to sort of engage with reasonable questioning and uh, reasonable inquisition into, into how things were actually working. Um, and so, yeah, part of what we're going to be producing is extremely detailed dashboards, which have uh, real-time information around uh, the solvency of the whole stablecoin. That's going to be broken down by custodian, by exchange, exposure, uh, everything that you can sort of like trace down uh, uh, to, to literally uh, the single dollar. Um, I think it's part of what we think is actually interesting about this, 
versus USDT or USDT, where uh, you're sort of waiting for for bank statements to come through from banks or auditor reports every quarter or whatever it is. Again, part of like what we found interesting about DeFi is having that real time view of, of what's actually going on under the hood. And if we weren't leveraging that, I think we'd be doing our users a bit of a disservice. Super interesting. I, I love that focus. And honestly, I really just like your worldview of like how you view what an interesting world uh, for DeFi looks like and kind of being just an open, transparent financial system. So uh, good to hear it on that front as well. But earlier in the call, you mentioned uh, the ability to add Bitcoin. So to me, it makes sense that staked ETH is a collateral because it has that natural yield, whereas Bitcoin does not. So how would the trade-offs kind of work for adding Bitcoin as collateral? I, yeah, I can take that. It would just, I guess, have like worse unit economics. Like, so at that point, when you do take Bitcoin on as collateral, you're presumably going to be in the size of like a billion uh, or multiple billions. Um, and you have to make that decision essentially, okay, do we want to scale this product to, as I said, reach way more users? Um, and if we do, that's like a decision we're making. And we like this product can essentially still function without the staked Ethereum yield. Um, so again, if you look at like the numbers with funding rates, uh, Bitcoin basically mirrors Ethereum funding rates in that uh, the number of days where Bitcoin funding rates have been positive has been 75% versus 25% negative. So the, as I said, the kind of economics of this are still viable with just uh, Bitcoin, hence kind of Arthur Hayes' post. Um, it's just obviously at worst unit economics. You don't have that extra little buffer that staked Ethereum gives us. Um, so if you add on the the five percent yield that staked ethereum has you get like that that those percentage of like negative days essentially dwindles down to like 11 percent. so it's just a different kind of setup um in terms of your exposure to funding rates um and potentially more of a drain on the insurance fund but as i said that could be like a trade-off we're willing to make eventually to to scale the product even further and kind of achieve the achieve the goals we're after yeah i think i think just to add to um connor's comments and i echo everything he said but um I think in the beginning, you're going to like ask the question of what is actually a fundable business that you can sort of grow in the beginning. If you take the idea of Bitcoin to to try and get funded, it look, doesn't look that interesting, right? You're sort of saying, can you take naked risk that this thing uh, doesn't blow up over the next few years? And hopefully there's sort of a token that's attached to it that, that people buy into. Um, I think that's a much harder sell than what could actually look like a really interesting sort of revenue generating um, protocol, um, which is if this thing is in this low sort of single digit billions, at some of the the yields that I was describing, back of the envelope math, it's producing like more revenue than every application that exists within DeFi now. I think you can sort of look across to Tether's profits and just see like what is actually the potential there um, in terms of them producing more than even BlackRock. Um, the reason I'm sort of saying that is um, I think it gives you interesting optionality to start with staked ETH first because uh, it's a really interesting business and it's a fundable business and it allows you to accrue cash into that insurance fund and then also raise capital for that insurance fund going forward. And then at some point, you've got enough in that insurance fund where you can then say, do I want this to be a really interesting business or do I want this to be a protocol which can um, like truly scale beyond the sort of like 10 billion in size? And I think uh, you sort of need to start with with the solid economics in the beginning to afford yourself the, the optionality to do that later. Yeah, I absolutely love the way you're thinking about this. I, I, I've been pondering the idea of an LST back stable for a while and was like, man, I hope whoever does it puts a strong emphasis on the insurance fund. So that way, 10 years down the line after that compounds for a while, you have a lot more flexibility in your design decisions to maybe try other things to scale the stable itself. Um, but I did want to ask you guys what your L2 strategy is. Obviously, a part of the core Ethereum roadmap is moving users to L2. So therefore, you want USDE to be there. Is that going to be relying on people, you know, 
bridging it there somehow or are you guys looking to mint it natively over there like have you guys thought at all about the lt strategy yeah i think um uh we have an over reliance on stake these um collateral sitting on eth l1 i think if you actually look at what's the migration of stake ETH and dollars to l2 i think it's been slightly underwhelming actually um in in the last sort of 18 months my view on that is that whales are actually just pretty comfortable I know we also had the, the curve news come out um, this week, so if we put that to the side, but like they were pretty comfortable in those pools um, up until last week, and that's kind of where you saw billions of dollars of liquidity sitting, and they didn't seem uh, to be able to take on that risk to, to go to an L2. And so for us, as I sort of said earlier, it's it's really about being close to where is the liquidity for dollars and, and staked ETH in the beginning, and uh, that's sort of ETH L1. Um, there are interesting... Um, New L2s that are popping up, which have a, a deeper focus around um, staked ETH as an asset going forward. And there are um, interesting discussions that we're having there. Um, I do think that there are also uh, products coming out from some of the messaging and, and bridging protocols, which allow you to access these sort of omni-chain um, deployments of your, your stablecoin across chain um, in a relatively secure way, uh, in our view. Um, and so, yeah, the initial focus is ETH L1 because of the liquidity that's sitting there. I think there are interesting developments on certain L2s who are focused on staked ETH as an asset. Um, and uh, it's something that I think we'll explore once we've, we've really nailed the opportunity on ETH L1. Sounds like a layer zero OFT, if you ask me. But hey, um, I guess I got to, you know, you got to ask the question, like, where are we in development, guys? Are we on testnet yet? Uh, and when can we expect a mainnet launch? Yeah, so we're running with like team prop capital at the moment. Um, trading with Connor's money and uh, haven't lost any yet. So um, that's going okay. Um, the idea is like we're running those numbers now for the for the next uh, six weeks. And uh, we have sort of investors who are in, in the seed round who are going to participate in, in just sort of like slowly growing the TVL before we open that up to the public. The idea is in, in uh, six weeks' time, we've got testnet forms um, on the Twitter, which you can sort of sign up to, to be involved there. And we're just going to do a very slow, secure, um, and controlled rollout of the product. Uh, in six weeks' time for people to engage. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm curious to get your, like, launch strategy. Uh, you know, again, we've seen Go launch. They launched very closely with Balancer. Um, Frax has been very attached to the hip with uh, Curve and the AMM ecosystem over there. What is your plan to kind of garner on-chain liquidity and, and create true depth for the stablecoin? Yeah, I think, um, obviously, the news events this week, like, uh, slightly put that up, up in the air. But um, I'll, maybe I'll just describe our general approach to these type of things, which is we're generally quite agnostic to um, providers, and we don't really like to um, sort of nail down our own success on a single platform going forward. So whether that's an exchange, whether it's a liquid staking token, whatever it is, like, I think diversity and, and sort of actually working with everyone towards the same goals is generally how we we sort of think about things. So we didn't have a, a like strong tie up in the same way that you sort of uh, described a few of these other projects. Um, so I think uh, there isn't a defined strategy with a single provider. We sort of want to work with others. And I, I think the other comment around that is that um, we have slightly less of a focus around actually incentivizing the liquidity sitting um, on chain with just token incentives. I just generally think it's um, it's not something that's like fully sustainable through time. We're quite focused on actually just making sure that that exogenous yield that we're bringing into our product actually just stands on its own two feet, which is we think quite interesting because you're basically leveraging a return from stake ETH and then the return from the futures market, which all sit out, outside of um, like the core piece of DeFi and that sort of self-referential yield that you like often see within that. 
And we just really want to lean into the fact that we think we have a really interesting uh, um, um, uh, sustainable source of yield that we can actually bring on chain, uh, which doesn't need as much of those incentives um, within those pools. So yeah, that's the, the general sort of comment. Awesome. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I'm super excited to see where Athena goes and I'm definitely going to sign up for that wait list for uh, the uh, test net. And I'll be sure to link that in the show notes, but Connor, um, Guy, do you guys want to share people where they can find you, learn more about Athena and get involved? At Connor Ryder on Twitter for me. And I think the Athena uh, Twitter is at Athena underscore labs. Um, we also have a Discord and a Telegram. You can find all that on our Twitter. And I'm uh, the leptocratic tag you can see over there. Thanks for the time, guys. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.